Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. This episode in Surviving Society Spotlight series was recorded prior to the publication of the report of the Government's Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities, a.k.a. the Sewell Report, on the 31st of March 2021. Welcome to Surviving Society Spotlights. My name's Caris Campion. I'm a Legacy and Action Research Fellow at the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre at De Montfort University, and I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Remy and Stephen. Yeah, my name is Remy Joseph Salisbury. I'm a research fellow at the University of Manchester, interested in racism in education and racism in policing. And I'm Stephen Ash. I was formerly a colleague of Remy and Caris at Manchester, and by the time this goes out, I'll be starting as a teaching fellow in sociology at the University of Durham, and my research focuses primarily on racism and resistance. So we're here today to talk about the BSA Commission Report Race and Ethnicity in British Sociology which we co-authored alongside Claire Alexander. I guess one of the first things we want to just speak about really is some of the kind of key demographics of the student and staff population that we, we found when we started unpacking some of the data. And one, I guess one of the things that I, I guess not surprised about, it's probably to be expected, but sociology is quite a popular subject, it seems, among students of colour. So the numbers of students studying sociology seem to be representative of the number of students of colour at the sector level. So about a quarter of all students are from BME backgrounds. And I guess it's quite a different picture to other disciplines where we see some of this work happening. So geography and history come to mind. So those subjects aren't as popular for BME students. And I guess when I kind of thought about why that might be, when I think about my own experience as an A-level student, sociology felt really current and contemporary and critical. And it helped me to kind of, you know, question my relation to society and how my position shaped by my gender, race, class, sexuality. Thinking about my own uh, journey to sociology as well, there was a lot of chance involved in my study in sociology, but I think what really appealed to me that made me want to go on to study at university and then uh, master's level and PhD was it felt like it really spoke to what I was seeing around me. It allowed me to understand my own experiences experiences of friends and family um, and to think about the issues that affected me in a real critical way and I didn't necessarily find that in a lot of other subjects so I wonder if that's as you say Karis if that's maybe a factor that that means that there are more black and minority ethnic students in sociology than some other disciplines but I'd, I'd also say that the more I've learned about sociology, the more I've been disappointed by some of those factors, you know, it's not inherently a place for um, for anti-racism. It's not inherently a critical place. It's got a history and a contemporary capacity for perpetuating racist ideas and uh, classist ideas and a lot of the ideas that we'd seek to combat. What about you, Stephen? How, how did you end up being a sociologist? I think about like yourself, Remy. I think it was chance. As a working-class kid in Paisley, 
bombed high school, apart from maybe modern studies and English. Had a modern studies teacher that was like, what are you doing? Can I post school? Maybe go to college. He got me into an access course and um, higher national certificate in social sciences. Got into sociology. I actually, through that course, was coming to university to study criminology. I think like probably a lot of kind of young people, I was like that kind of drawn to crime through those kind of popular cultural sort of kind of references and stuff like that because I'd probably watched The Godfather or something like that too many times I don't know and then it wasn't it wasn't until I was in university that I started to kind of explore sociology specifically and probably so in the Scottish system you get four years you can do a four-year degree and it probably wasn't until second year being taught by Satman Birdie and being able to talk critically in the classroom about things that related to your everyday life. Like you could make that connection because that's probably where I have I kind of made my way, but way at university. Yeah, I understand some of those kind of critiques that you make, Remy, about as you kind of move through <laughs> your kind of career as a student and academic, you know, some of those disappointments started to kind of become more explicit and more clear to you. And I, I guess one of the stark ways that that, those kind of inequalities or, you know, manifest and I guess I've seen within some of the research that we've done is the, the obvious thing is the awarding gap. So as much as the um, the subject seems to be quite popular amongst students of colour, you know, reminiscent of the kind of sector-wide situation, the awarding gap is still, you know, quite significant and slightly higher, in fact, than the sector whole, the average for the sector as a whole. So again, it's kind of like, you know, thinking about the fact that students are keen sociologists, but then they get to university they're not necessarily seeing themselves reflected in the curriculum and also in the in the staff that teach them so one of the other things that we found is you know when it comes to the staff this is a quite different picture so we found that about 85 percent of sociology staff are predominantly white you know all these things i guess combined don't they to, to create these kind of outcomes and inequalities that we wanted to kind of get our survey respondents to help us shine a light on and you know, understand a bit more clearly. So um, the curriculum is one of the key things we asked our survey respondents to kind of think about and how that looks within different institutions. Just on that point that Remy was talking about, like that kind of sense of disappointment, the more familiar you became with sociology. And I think that's reflected in one of the kind of things in the report about like progression to postgraduate study. Like the numbers from, the numbers of students of colour enrolling for undergraduate sociology and then moving on to postgraduate sociology, there's a dip, there's a decline. And I think, like, it's really important to, like, some of the things that you kind of mentioned is, like, it, it points towards what are the reasons for that decline and are institutions and departments willing to kind of think about and talk about in, in a kind of open and transparent way those sorts of reasons for why there's, no, there's a, a dip when it comes to progression to postgraduate study. I mean, yeah, again, thinking about my own experience of becoming a sociology undergraduate student, the this whole discussion that we we want to have really about where race and ethnicity comes into it, it wasn't until my you know, survey responses suggest, it wasn't until second year that I was able to pick a module related to race and ethnicity, and that was an optional one. And that seems to be a pattern that persisted. I mean, you know, I graduated in 2010. <laughs> so, um, you know, some of the things it shows some of the things that we found shows that this 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 is a persistent thing that hasn't really shifted over that time um 
Yeah, I remember my, my undergraduate degree in sociology. I didn't even have one course, one module on race and ethnicity. There was a module on identity that had a week on race and ethnicity. That was the week that really captured my interest, shaped the dissertation that I did and probably encouraged me to see if I could find more elsewhere. But as you say, it it looks like there's still cause for many students to be disappointed with the curriculum that they're, they're receiving in British sociology, particularly if they're interested in study of race and ethnicity. And of course, there are other issues that, that similar critiques could be made of as well. Uh, so just kind of following on to what Remy was saying there about the curriculum, like, so in, in the report, uh, when we analysed the different degree programmes available on departmental websites, we found that almost a quarter of undergraduate degree programmes um, made no explicit reference to, to race or ethnicity. But where race and ethnicity were taught, it was taught as an add-on or as a specialist module rather than like being a core foundational part of the curriculum. One of the things we also found was that core social theory modules rarely included um, scholars of colour in the curriculum. Reflecting back in my own undergraduate teaching of things like social theory, there was very little discussion of, for example, when you discussed like Durkheim and the Frankfurt School and stuff like that, quite often they were taught as like kind of abstract ideas that were detached. Maybe not so much with the Frankfurt School, but certainly like like Marx and and Durkheim, there wasn't like a discussion of Jewishness. And if you kind of periodise the time in which Marx and Durkheim were writing, being Jewish, they would have been racialised outside the dominant white, white group. And I think that raises interesting kind of points of discussion for how we teach social theory, um, how we use the term dead white man and how we relate that to the kind of racialization of the kind of the European interior and how that connects to kind of colonialism and empire. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been some really great work in recent years, recovering contributions, highlighting the contributions of black academics, academics of colour. I think W.E.B. Du Bois is the foremost example i think and um morris's work the scholar denied hopefully is increasing the pressure for curricular transformation also thinking of the gaminda bamber and others do with the global society website and even the connected sociologies project that again gaminda bamber is working on that is creating more and more resources that are grappling with some of these questions around race, ethnicity, racism, and anti-racism, and, and they're for schools so that from a young age, from school age into university, there are resources there. And it becomes more and more difficult, I think, for academics to say that there's nothing out there, don't know how to do it. There, there are resources being created. So um, we just need, I think we need to be proactive in finding them and using them and upskilling ourselves to be able to teach if we don't think we have these Skills and a lot of a lot of people in the survey. I think fifty uh, percent of respondents said that teaching of race and ethnicity is more challenging than the teaching of other subjects, which I think is one of the one of the significant findings or one of the findings that struck me. Uh, it raises questions about why we see race and ethnicity as more difficult 
I know a lot of respondents, um, ethnic minority respondents, highlighted experiences of racism, either experiencing it directly or witnessing it. And that maybe points to the atmosphere, the climate in which we're looking to embed race and ethnicity in the curriculum. There is at times resistance from students. There is at times resistance from staff, which is not to say that there aren't student campaigns that are really pushing forward to decolonize the curriculum. And there's a whole whole other discussion about what that actually means. But uh, as much as there are efforts to transform the curriculum, there are also uh, there's also a lot of resistance to that, which really, really makes some of this work difficult, I think. Yeah, well, when you've got the universities comparing, what did she say, decolonizing to Soviet Union-style censorship, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the kind of message that's coming, coming down from the topics. It just shows some of the kind of structural constraints that we're working within. Well, Remy's just kind of outlined, like, the main findings of, like, what the survey respondents told us noted the various kind of staff and student kind of campaigns and stuff to kind of decolonize the curriculum and the work that like Germinda's doing with the global social theory and connected sociologies and stuff like that. Does that feel, when you compare the, the, those two things, like the various work that's been done and in the survey, to be fair, a lot of respondents did refer to kind of positive work that was being done at their institution but noting that it, would, it was getting done in silos and it wasn't a part of a kind of broader institutional framework so when you kind of put those things together does it create a sense of optimism and hope or a sense of kind of pessimism or a kind of combination a kind of mix of both i definitely think that those things are kind of helping to create a critical mass of scholarship and scholars in kind of an interconnected anti-racist networks and giving them kind of the confidence, the tools and the skills to bring these issues to their departments. I mean, it's like what you say, Remy, to struggle, you know, about struggling from where you are. I think there's no doubt about it that this, all these different things are building capacity, you know, within these networks of scholars and activists that want to be doing this work. But again, one of the things that I was thinking about when we talked about different people and the different projects and is the fact that these things need to have that institutional support if they are to instigate long-term cultural changes. And I think that's one of the things that I'm just relating it, thinking about the race equality charter market, some of the research that I've recently done. Some of the things that the staff that I spoke to said is that often things around actions and kind of, you know, points that they want to kind of bring up to address ethnic disparities at their institution Often it's pocketed, pocketed intervention. So, so and so is doing that over in history. So and so is doing that over in uh, geography or physics or whatever. And these interventions are often finite, have finite funding, rely on the goodwill of a few people. And once those things are done, they're done. That's one of the things I guess we need to be calling out for and thinking about is, you know, for these things to maintain their impact. It goes about saying that there needs to be support at the, the highest level of in our institutions um, to give these the momentum and the legitimacy that they deserve. 
So, yeah, and obviously we're working in university, large, these big institutions that often work in devolved structures. Like, well, actually, this is a teaching and learning issue that needs to be addressed within those spheres of the university. You know, we talked about lack of training and so on and so forth. We all have to do the HEA fellowship these days, don't we? We're all professionalising our teaching. I don't know about you guys, but when I've done those courses, you know, universities can do their own little versions to get accreditation now. There's not really any talk of race, ethnicity, the student body that we're teaching, how to be quick to deal with these difficult issues when they arise in the classroom. Like, you know, this is something that is learned. You know, it's not something that we can kind of, yeah. So the broader structures and how, yeah, small projects and things like that and interventions yeah. is some, seems to be what the, the university actually favours because it, it means that there's an end point. I think that's really important, Karis, and hopefully one of the key messages that comes through the report is that the change needs to be institutionally embedded. If we're going to have more critical studies of race, ethnicity and racism in the curriculum, to be sustained, to be long-term, it has to be really deeply embedded at an institutional level. And most often it's not. A lot of respondents were telling us that this is what's needed. It's a long way off at, at many institutions, which is not to say, as, as, as you're pointing to, Karis, there were a lot of examples of good practice that came through in the survey. A lot of people doing some really amazing work, developing some really important modules, but was really struck by how often those people early career researchers, they're in precarious employment, they're people of colour, which means they're often more likely to be precarious in the academy. And that's, of course, an, an, an extra burden on those members of staff, important as it is, which we should consider in its relation to the underrepresentation of people of colour in lecturing positions, particularly in professor roles. These two things are tied, the who takes up the responsibility to do this work that isn't prioritised in the academy, where the research excellence framework means that our research outputs are what we're measured on. The other point is that if we rely on good practice of individuals, when those individuals move on, perhaps because they're overworked as a consequence of having having to take on this labour, then what happens to that work? I think often it falls through the cracks. It's or there's a someone else comes along and does that work again. There's rarely a memory of it, and people are also not rewarded and with permanent positions for the work that they the work that they do. There's a lack of time given to staff to do this work. It's not part of workload deployment often to do the work of decolonizing the curriculum or whatever we want to call it, which suggests that an institutional level is not a priority. It's it's not put right at the top of the things that are important to a department. And also another institutional indicator of the lack of importance is the lack of commitment to hiring staff with relevant expertise in this area, as well as a lack of commitment to hiring staff from black and minority ethnic backgrounds and a lack of oversight at the departmental and institutional level about what is being taught. So a lot of people responded saying they just really had no idea of what was being taught in other courses or in other disciplines. So without that, I, th I think that's 
one thing that we really wanted to highlight that there has to be some mechanism for seeing what is already in place in order to understand what needs to be done. That's really important. So between 2018 and 2020, I conducted, what was that, I think, four research projects looking at various kind of aspects, like kind of racism and racial inequality at three different universities in England. So there's a couple of things that kind of frustrated me about that work, which is the fact that there's often a lack of transparency. So you do the research, you write the reports, but where do the reports go? So I would get told by the people that I was doing the research for, it goes, it goes to a certain committee and it gets spoke about there, and then I'd hear nothing of it. And then I'd wonder, well, well I've actually commissioned the report. Why have I not been asked to present the findings to them and have a discussion? I'm not saying it should be me, but anybody doing that type of work. Institutions need to be better at mapping what's been done and what isn't been done throughout the institutional structure. One of the projects I did was evaluating a university's um, widening participation schemes for recruiting black and minority ethnic and or working class students. And one of the things that the ethnic minority students spoke about was the fact that when they were coming in for these initiatives and open days, they were sold the university vision of diversity. When they went on to their courses and they sat in lecture halls and seminars, whether it was physics or sociology or whatever, they were often the only white person in the room at open days and at at these widening participation initiatives, they were introduced to staff of colour and then they wouldn't see them again until maybe their third year. And what that kind of demonstrates is there is that lack of institutional joined up thinking that that filters its way down into departments, you know? So there's a lack of thinking about what's the representation at undergraduate level teaching. So when do students meet staff of colour in their undergraduate programmes? When did they get introduced to race and ethnicity in the curriculum? Well, I think the the last point there about where students get introduced to it is a really important one. In the report, we highlight how it's often in second year, it's often in third year, it's often an elective or optional module, which again is reflective of this situation where it's not being institutionally embedded. And it's part of a broader issue in terms of how central we see race and ethnicity to sociology and more broader than that how central we see race and ethnicity as a central structuring force in our society and more and more we're seeing that that is not the case really worrying critiques on attacks on critical race theory and black lives matter in recent times which i think are all part of the context of what we're discussing in this report as well as critical race theory and attacks and scholars in the UK, like um, Qualities Minister and the Minister for Universities attacking decolonial theory, critical race theory and stuff like that. You've got academics using their platforms to say that like, the intellectual utility of concepts like white privilege and toxic masculinity are unhelpful. It comes in a kind of broader political and cultural context where there's a kind of rightwards authoritarian shift, which is attempting to curtail how we talk about these issues. Definitely. I think as well, like decolonising and critical race theory, white privilege, all these kinds of language and these kind of theoretical concepts that we use to unpack how it is that we have all these kind of differential outcomes across disparate ethnic groups. I think it's something as well about language and race in particular. It evokes this kind of emotive response in ways that, you know, issues pertaining to like gender inequality and so on and so forth just 
just don't in the same way. And I think as well, when we're trying to kind of put it back to this language and couch our, um, you know, our kind of politics in on those terms, I think the part of the issue is, is that we're also working against, you know, we've seen a shift from discourses of institutional racism towards, you know, your unconscious bias training and this and that that's rolled out just, you know, like and you know, millions of workshops and so on and so forth that you can opt into to do unconscious bias training. And I think kind of are we we're trying to claw back that kind of, you know, that anti-racist language and rhetoric and it doesn't sit well with people. Like it stirs something, it conjures something up in people. Like it's kind of, it's an uncomfortable pill to swallow, I guess, because we're just naming it for what it is. We're not, we don't want to talk about diversity and inclusion anymore. We've talked about this outside of this conversation about language and what that means for the how you know how we progress these kinds of issues and the challenges that we might face when trying to kind of communicate these issues. Um, so I think that's got an important part to play as well. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think um, in this context of higher education, but in in the wider context of anti-racist work reclaiming institutional racism as as a language as a frame through which we understand these problems is absolutely vital and the reduction of racism to individualized expressions or in individualized instant incidents really hampers really limits our ability to discuss the problems at hand and and within that we also need to be able to think and talk about the legacies of colonialism, how that shapes curriculum, how that shapes what's going on in our university. And as important as I think our report is, I hope people read it and find use in it. And I hope it highlights some of the problems and potentially uh, ways to make change. There's also a wider context in higher education that really needs to be thought about as well liberalization of higher education is a factor here that positioned students as consumers it's created a real instrumentalization of learning that i think adds to propensity for race and racism to be sidelined it's not seen as uh it's seen as even less important in a market-driven university that's about getting grades and about preparing people for employment rather than thinking about vital issues uh, uh, important for social change and also important for maintaining the social inequality we face. And then we also have to ask questions about what happens if we transform the curriculum, we get more black staff in, but departments are training the police, are funding the police, taking money from the police, the police that the Black Lives Matter protests highlighted this summer and protests for several decades have highlighted a police force that is institutionally racist, that harasses and brutalises black communities, other communities of colour, working class communities, trans communities. What does it mean for our universities to be involved in, investing in, working with the arms trade and arms companies? And what does it mean for our universities to be perpetuating ideas on eugenics and uh, ideas about the failures of black families and so on and so forth. So there's some important work to be done in transforming the curriculum, but I think we really need to situate it 
in its wider context as well, transforming the curriculum for what end? I think that's absolutely spot on, Remy, and I think that the way in which higher education in this country is funded needs to be, as you say, like needs to be fundamentally part of that conversation and, and thinking about where research funding comes from, you know, like taking money for companies that are in, that basically invest in, in building drones that are used in drone attacks, taking money from governments that are heavily involved in like oppressing what their own peoples and stuff like that. I think like they're the kind of kind of conversations we have, and I think that too often I've been in environments where the conversations happen in a very tokenistic way, and I think that we're you know like taking money for for certain companies, like we have the debate and we have the discussion. But for me, that's part of a a broad. It seems to me part of a broader management, what we might call a kind of pressure valve management technique. It's like. We know there's going to be some staff that are going to be critical and are going to be frustrated or angry or whatever. Let's have the discussion, release a wee bit of pressure, but let's carry on regardless, you know. What do we hope happens from this report or what do we hope to see happen in higher education in the next few years? I think one thing that's important to say is this This is just a starting point, this report. It's also, it also comes off the back of and inspired by other reports, particularly the report by the Royal Historical Society, hopefully part of a clamour of voices, including student protesting campaigns that are calling for change. So maybe a more interesting question is, in that context, in the context of anti-racist protests more widely, what, what are our hopes for higher education. Can I suggest one hope? And it came from Ali Meji asked us to do a talk at Cambridge just about the kind of main findings. And and one of the things that I found really fascinating during the kind of Q&A was one of the participants, I think it was a student, and one of the things that they were talking about in the context of COVID, which is demonstrating in and of itself the exacerbation of racial inequality in, in various different guises, One of the things, as far as higher education is concerned, the point the student was making from a disabled student standpoint was that what COVID's demonstrated, the shift to online learning and the the rapid speed in which universities have adapted to COVID pulls away the, kind of whips the rug from under the excuse that these things take time. It's demonstrated that these big, clunky, disjointed, bureaucratic machines can actually respond quicker than they would have us believe. A lot of the resources that were put, that were developed in response to the online, the shift to online teaching was evidence to disabled students that these are things that we've been asking for for decades. And yet up until now, you've been unable to or unwilling to provide those resources. So it goes back to the point Remy made about marketization. I think. It's like when it's a market-driven response, the universities can't act. When, it's, when profits are at stake, universities can't act. But when racial inequality or gender inequality is at stake, equality for disabled staff and students is at stake, it's a question of institutional will. You would hope that you would start to see other institutions take the lead of like institutions like um, Glasgow Uni, which has been paying the University of West Indies reparations for the for the way that Glasgow benefited from the, the slave trade. Glasgow's also, and also you'd hope that we might move to a more kind of trans parent sort of kind of stage where universities talk about these things openly and again going back to Glasgow which by the way I should just say I did my sociological training at Glasgow but Glasgow's just released a report by Satnam Birdie, Mary Taylor um, and Cassie Masterstons Understanding Racism Transforming University Cultures and they published it and so you kind of hope that those examples 
in terms of people maybe reading the report, maybe get to the stage where they start to think in way or start to do things in ways that are open and transparent. Yeah, and I think like you were saying as as well, I was thinking about the other professional societies that have already done this kind of work, building up that kind of that network, I guess, and those examples of good practice and learning from each other and not having these kind of conversations within our within our own disciplines and kind of talking to each other. You know, there's ways that we need to kind of, you know, we need to think about how to open up the lines of communication, really, and bring these kind of conversations together um, and learn from each other. As much as we've kind of hoffed and puffed about lots of other issues that we we have in higher education at the moment, you know, the, the fact remains that there are kind of points of intervention that could possibly become something quite transformative. The race equality charter mark at the moment is one such thing, a kind of, national charter and at the moment i think it's encouraging universities to be kind of aspirational um in their kind of targets and their actions and you know to get that bronze award you need to kind of just aspire to really and kind of think about what you might like to do and i guess the next stage on from that is to kind of start holding universities to account a little bit more and kind of okay well targeted approaches auditing monitoring okay so you said you were going to do this have you done that and what's the consequence of not of not doing it you know i mean we've seen with like athena swan how that's attached to funding now and i just wonder if there's somebody if you know um funders in you know there'll be a champion within the funding bodies that will do a similar thing in relation to to race and obviously we you know that's <laughs> that's yet to be seen um and you know we've also got the office for students who have you know created a specific office for students so now i was also requiring institutions and um, to report on their degree attainment by ethnicity as part of their access and participation plans there's things that are kind of kind of happening and i guess we're part of that momentum and part of that that change the fact remains that i guess the it, it, it relies on the goodwill of senior management the pots of money at their disposal to kind of think about how they do champion these issues because that's that's the kind of things that the sector listens and responds to. It's been really encouraging to hear how many people have got in touch with us and said they're reading this, they're discussing it in their departments, they're thinking about the changes that can be made. But it's also been a little disappointing that there have been a couple of responses, at least a couple of responses, where, where people seem to have a knee-jerk desire to say that's not my institution, which I think is interesting in terms of how we move this thing forward, where the problem lies. And what, what I'd really like to see is people pausing to think a little bit more about that and thinking whether whether that can really be said about any institution in the UK. Of course, there's variation between departments and some might have race and ethnicity more embedded in the curriculum than others, but whether any department could claim that they've reached where exactly where they need to be I think would be naive really we, I, we should always be looking to do better and do more so mm. that's one thing I'd really like to see those kind of not us responses I think when I say we I, I don't just mean the three of us I mean anybody possibly listening to the podcast it's like when you encounter those responses we need to be asking questions like if, if sociologists or academics can do anything it should be about like kind of rigorous critique. We should be able to ask things like, when you say it's not us, what's your what's your evidence base for saying that? 
You know, like how do you know? Is that just based on your your kind of is that just based on anecdotes and supervisual impressions of what you see and stuff like that? Um, and it, it brings me back to like the research I was doing at uh, one of the universities in 2018. When I was doing the research on racial inequality and degree attainment, remember about the time that this research was done, a white male professor at the university tweeted and said, I have never had a student come to me and speak to me about safe spaces and trigger warnings. And I thought to myself, like, that individual needs to be asked, like, well, why do you think that might be? You know, as a white male established professor, why do you think students won't come to you and talk to you about those sorts of things? So therefore, that person's superficial impressions is based on their experiences of getting into kind of seminar rooms and getting into lecture halls and, and speaking, no questioning what are the dynamics that are going on within those contexts. Especially as sociologists, it's like, we should be the very people that are able to dissect these issues and understand that they operate on a structural level. You know, it's not about local disputes and departments. It's about the discipline as a whole and how it's been developed and deployed. That's something that I think as sociologists, we have this, we should have skill set and the willingness and the desire to kind of, yeah, unpack the structural nature of inequalities and how that manifests itself in how we teach, include, exclude race and ethnicity in our discipline. Carlos, can you imagine like putting the same effort into examining like institutional cultures and racial inequality in institutions as we put into grading research papers on a three-star, four-star, five-star, six-star <laughs> basis or whatever it is? Imagine putting the same time and effort and looking at the place of race and ethnicity in the academy is you we, we do things like that and i think one of the things just to link back to something you said a while ago caris when you were talking about the the race charter mark and athena swan and how race elicits sort of kind of almost i don't know maybe a kind of more fraught or hysterical set of responses it's really i think it's really really interesting the way that athena swan is linked to research funding where there is a carrot and a stick approach you know you can get your you can get your gold, silver, bronze award, and then, but if you don't um, meet certain criteria, that has implications for funding. I think something like the the race equality charter mark needs to be given that same sort of set of kind of powers. I think because I think one of the things that we know is that in terms of bringing about change, whilst persuasion is important, the evidence, like for example, in the recent Stuart Hall Foundation report on racial inequality. Um, in different areas, not just in uh, in education, but in health and criminal justice and in employment and stuff like that. Persuasion only takes us so far. The fact there's been so little change in recent since 1965 in the introduction of the First Race Relations Act, there needs to be far more done that we're, in terms of holding people to account, holding institutions to account. One mm. of the things that's really interesting about the OFS, I think, is, and Evan Smith talks about this in his book, No Platform, tracing it back to like when Joe Johnson was I think the Minister for Education and he was talking about the OFS and how the OFS will be given the powers to ensure that universities uphold free speech. If universities don't uphold free speech this could potentially lead to fines. Just thinking about that and the ways in which the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism has been criticised. Ben Gidley and James Renton did a really good post uh, podcast and monitor racism on this I think highlighting how these sorts of definitions and these sorts of the stuff that the OFS is, is doing around like kind of awarding gaps and stuff like that 
it's always against the backdrop, it seems to me, against the backdrop of something else, like defending kind of forms of free speech and stuff like that, a kind of particular right-wing vision of kind of free speech that limits the way in which we can we can talk about racial equality and equality and social justice more broadly. And I think one of the things we kind of need to do is just unravel that unravel that set of contradictions and how the, those different things come into being and hinder certain types of social justice work or social justice initiatives at the expense of of other kind of projects and ideas. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.